You are listening to This Is Spinal Crab, the podcast about living well with a spinal cord injury. Remember, if you heard it on This Is Spinal Crap, it's probably not medically correct, so always check with your spinal unit or an appropriate medical professional. This Is Spinal Crap is sponsored by Colorplast, providing effective solutions for bladder and bowel management. So welcome back to This Is Spinal Crap, everyone. Today we are talking all about adventuring. Um, I think in this time of isolation, everyone is dreaming about some kind of travel or itching for a trip. So hopefully in this episode, we can at least live vicariously by listening to some adventures. So today, of course, we have Ruth joining us. How are you doing today, Ruth? I'm very, very good. Thank you. So I believe you and I were pretty avid travellers before our injuries. And I think we've, we've done a bit of travelling since. You've been to America and I've been to a couple of places. But I'm really excited to hear from our guests today to get some inspiration to push myself a little bit more out of my comfort zone, I think. So we're very excited today to have Karen Dark with us, who is a British Paralympic cyclist, a paratriathlete, an adventurer and an author. And she's also climbed El Capitan, which is a huge inspiration for me because that's somewhat of a dream of mine. Um, not only all of that, but she's also a Spinal Injury Association ambassador. So sort of the perfect guest to have on today. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. How are you doing? Thanks. I'm, good. I'm all right. I'm a bit flustered, actually. It's about 35 degrees and windy and I've just got back off my bike, so I'm a bit late. <laughs> That's all right. You're in sunny Spain, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, I've, been, I've been in lockdown here since, um, well, yeah, since it all began. So I'm not complaining. It's not a bad place to be stuck, but um, I'm starting to kind of long for the British mountains and the cooler weather and my friends and my family. <laughs> Yeah, that's very fair. I've been watching your um, your pictures and videos on Instagram. I've been getting very jealous of you hand biking across sunny Spain. Um, we also have Kirk Williams joining us today, who has built a custom accessible van and is traveling around South America and documenting his journey. I'm amazed by your photos on Instagram. And when I found your page, I was just so happy to see someone with a spinal cord injury, like living their dream on the road. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And you're joining us from Buenos Aires, is that right? I am, and it's the opposite. It's freezing cold here. It's wintertime, oh, really? it's raining, and I have not been on my bike. I've been uh, inside now going on like three months. I've been allowed out of my apartment twice in three months. And they have oh my God. pretty strict lockdown regulations here where they're they're extending it another three weeks with uh, mandatory lock-ins unless you're going to the grocery store or to pharmacy. So a bit of a change when I plan to be driving around South America. I, I spent two or three months in Patagonia that was incredible and quickly shifted to an Airbnb um, with white walls and, uh, and TVs and screens to look at rather than nature and monacos. So, but otherwise, all I'm happy, healthy, safe, have food on the table, roof over my head, so it could be worse. Do you have somebody with you? I do. I'm traveling with my brother, which is huge. Um, he came with me, uh, but he's riding a motorcycle on the trip, and I'm in the van, so we kind of both have our own vehicles, our own uh, adventure, but he's there to help me. I'm a quadriplegic, so with 
with anything from mechanical stuff to shopping to being in a, a country, a continent that's not accessible at all. Um, and then I'm his support vehicle uh, as a place to stay warm and it's dry and to cook where it's warm inside and just the companionship and, and carry spare clothes and parts and whatever. So we're kind of both helping each other in different ways, but a good team for sure. Yeah, Kirk, I, I love your van and especially the videos you've posted of how you get into it. Can you tell us a bit about kind of what inspired you to build it and, and how, how it was built? And tell me how you get into it. I'm intrigued to know. Yeah, Amazing. totally. totally. Um, all of it comes down to, to Karen, something we both have in common, probably all of us, is being like an adventurer at heart. And how do you find a way to like get out and do those things? And being being a quad, it's harder. I have zero grip in, in either of my hands, and I have one tricep but not the other. And though I play sports like wheelchair rugby and I hand cycle and do some different things, I'm not – I don't feel like I have enough muscle function sometimes to, to do some of the more extreme adventurous activities like rock climbing and things like that. For me, like traveling in a vehicle, a van or a four wheel drive or something like that gives that to me. So, um, my love for travel, you know, started years ago, but when I broke my neck, I wasn't sure how I'd be able to travel. Um, and if I do, and I'm sure you guys have found too, that, the hardest part is finding lodging and, and transportation and where are you going to stay? How are you going to shower, you know, bathroom widths, all those sort of things. And so what kind of slowly dawned on me is if I can build a vehicle that has a bed for me to sleep in and a bathroom I can use, wheels I can drive, then I'm pretty independent no matter where that vehicle is. Mind you, as soon as I get out of the car, it may be really hard. If I'm driving on a beach in Mexico, let's say, and I get out of the van, all of a sudden I'm stuck. But as long as I'm in that van, I can get around it and see it and do everything I love to do. So with that idea, you know, after driving around the U.S. a lot and up through uh, Canada and into Alaska and doing some trips, I had this idea of what's the furthest place I can drive from here. And I started looking on the map and Ushuaia, the southern tip of Argentina, is the end of the Pan American Highway. It's like, OK, let's shoot for that. Let's see if I can make it there. And this was, yeah, maybe four years ago. Um, and so since then, I basically have been trying to figure out how to get a vehicle, how to find funding, how to design a vehicle for me. You know, a, my van is designed specifically for me by me, which makes everything easier. It's not just a cool accessory or convenience. It's now I can reach all the plugs and the light switches, little things like USB things. For, for us without dexterity, it's hard to plug in a USB cord. But if I can put it in a place I can get to, it's easy. If I can do everything, you know, and plan it ahead of time, my van is actually easier for me to, to function in than, than even my own home and my parents' homes and hotels. Like, it's my my little safe zone. Um, so with that, yeah, I had planned to come down here. I had to find somebody who was kind of willing to come with me because I knew you know, for one, I wanted to do this with somebody. I, I didn't want to be on the road by myself for this long, especially in, in a country where I'm not very good at Spanish or anything like that. Um, but for two, safety reasons and, and everything else, I just needed some assistance. And I was able to kind of convince my brother who was, he's four years older than me and he has a great job and was happy, but, you know, was kind of looking to shake things up a little bit. And I was like, what What are you thinking? Would you be willing to do this? And I was like, yeah, 
I'm, I'm serious, but I think I'd like to ride a motorcycle. And I was like, huh, I never thought about that, but that will probably keep us from killing each other. So that's perfect. I'm on Instagram now looking at your van. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's one of them. The other one at Impact Overland is the one that's the whole trip. Um, and that's I-M-P-A-C-T period Overland. The van, you know, everything from the lift that you were talking about, which is, it's called a super arm lift. I get a lot of questions about it. Um, they make them in Colorado and they've been around since the eighties. It's a, it's kind of a family run company that they're a great unit. They haven't really been updated in a while. And the family is kind of like, well, if it works, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. So they aren't really wanting to change anything. Um, but it's pretty cool because that that lift style for me, I can't disassemble my chair very easily on my own and hop in and out of a car. So I need to take a lift in and out. But when you're off road a lot of the time, a big platform lift doesn't let you out of the van because it's uneven surfaces or there's snow or sand or whatever. And this lift is essentially a L-shaped bar with a swing that clips into your chair and you just swing in and out of the van on this little platform and what's awesome about it is you can get in and out in a normal parking spot you don't need all that clearance to take a ramp um, it'll let you out anywhere and then it doesn't obstruct the door so people can come in and out of the car in the back of the van without needing to step on a lift every time um, so it seems like the best option and and you know with this trip there's i know this is a long-winded answer sorry but um the, the two big goals of it, I guess three, one was to, to fuel and, and fill my sense of adventure and freedom and independence. Two is my love of photography and being able to see the world, but also using that in a way to educate others about this lifestyle, which is why this podcast is so great, because I'm trying to to reach people and put this idea of a mobile home, a turtle shell on your back with everything you need can really open up doors. You don't have to go to South America or to a different country, but even just camping with your kids or with your friends, it can allow this freedom that a lot of people, once they're you know, mobility impaired, don't ever think about that sort of outlet again. You know, And it's just too much work. Setting up a tent or sleeping outside doesn't have to be that way. And then part three is I'm, I'm partnering with the Walkabout Foundation uh, that is working to deliver wheelchairs to people all over the world who can't even get their own wheelchair. So using that as a fundraising tool to try and help hopefully ship a whole container full of wheelchairs to South America and make a tangible like mobility difference um, for some of the people I met when I was down here who could use the help. So that's kind of the the where I'm at and, and we had been planning this and unfortunately, you know, with the coronavirus, we're not sure if we're going to continue going on um, from here or if we're going to have to kind of hold up and, and see. It's just, uh, you know, like everybody kind of caught us off guard and making the best of it, seeing what goes. I think that's just fantastic. Um, I love what you were saying about the, like having plugs that work for you. As a quad, are there, what are some other key kind of adaptations you've had to make to your yeah, van? Yeah, thanks. That's, that's a great question. Um, and it's funny because people who come and see my van are like, oh, that's a beautiful van. You know, it looks really nice. But other quads who come and see it are like, oh, man, like that makes total <laughs> sense. Like they get it. You know, things like 
for instance, that there's a refrigerator in it and it's a small like fridge you would see in a sailboat or something. And normally in cars, they set them down on the ground because they're heavy. But for me, without abs or grip, I actually set it up above my lap so that when I open the door, I can use both hands and lift the carton of milk or whatever onto my lap versus trying to get it from down here up to my lap. Like that's, that's a big thing that makes a big difference for me. Everything in there is on drawers. So rather than trying to reach under something and back, I can pull a drawer out so I can bring it closer to me. Um, I have touch button switches all the way around where you just, I tap it with my finger. I have a sink that I can roll my knees under because I know doing like dishes and everything like that, it's really challenging. Um, but I can roll my, my knee under and I can also pull the sink head off and use it as a shower. So I can actually rinse off in the sink. So that's kind of a, a multi-use zone. Um, the, the transfer seat, the driver's seat that comes back for me to get in and out, a six-way transfer. Behind that seat is actually a stove top, like an induction, so an electric stove that folds down when I'm driving so the seat can come forward and back. But then I, I once I'm camped, I can turn the front two seats around so they face backwards to their seating and then flip that stove top up and that space is still usable even though it's you know over the track that it can't be used otherwise. Um, so things like that, you know, it's all about accessing every niche and cranny and, and setting, you know, like USB plugs beside your pillow so that I can charge my phone. You know, I've had vans prior to this and you know, one thing would be like, oh, I'll plug in my phone up by the dash, but then, then you know, you lay down in bed and and as you guys know, it takes a little while to, to get on bed and get comfortable. And then once I'm there, my phone starts ringing. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, I really got to get back in my chair, roll to the front of the car, you know, to unplug this phone. So note to self, if I ever build another van, I'm going to have a plug by my bed. And all of those ideas came to this van, along with, like, what adaptive knives and what, like, jar openers and all these little, all the tricks I've learned. I kind of concentrated and put them all into this one little tiny vessel that now is like the ultimate independent freedom mobile for me as a quadriplegic. Um, and then I put it on a four wheel drive van, which gives me even more, you know, accessibility to, to off road and stuff like that. I'm crazy jealous at the moment. I'm crazy. Yeah, me too. I, in fact, I was looking at vans a couple of days ago and I was trying to figure out when I've looked at them before, I can't figure out where I would easily put my handbike so I could get it in and out easily and sleep in there with the handbike not thrown outside. So what do you do for that? You know, that there's um, a friend who I helped design her van that depending on what's your level, your, your, I'm T3. T3. Okay. But um, she designed it where she could roll her, her bike under her bed and then hopped up you know, you need a long enough van for this to work, but hopped in sleeps on top of it, um, you know, on like a platform. She's, I mean, I'm sure you could probably hop up. See, for me, my problem was I can't transfer, but it's so much higher than my chair, maybe another six inches or so. But, you know, I can't, a lot of them, a lot of van designs, people put their bikes under their bed, but the, you know, the bed's up at chest level for me in my chair. I'm like, there's no way I'm making that transfer. Kirk, can I ask you a question about your photographs? And um, they're gorgeous. Your pictures on, on Instagram are lovely. Thank you. 
And um, I, before my injury, did a lot of traveling and took a lot of photos. And that was kind of how I spent my time. And it's been a real issue for me that I feel like I can't do that the way that I used to. Right. And then I look at your pictures and I'm like, but your injury is so much, so much higher than mine. I have full use of my hands. I've got so, like, so much mobility. Um, and I'm amazed that you can get such amazing pictures. Like, and uh, do you have any specialist equipment that you use, or how do you do it? Yes, the the number one, my favorite piece of equipment, and what I what I suggest if you can do it is I fly like a little drone, and honestly, and that gives me the freedom to set the camera anywhere I want. And a lot of the pictures that look like they're taken from a tripod or or whatever, because they're only a meter off the ground, are actually my drone that I just flew to that spot to get the shot. And and that's, I, I have a, I started a company like five or six years ago in Colorado called Bird's Eye Optics that I do drone aerial photography and videography. So that company, essentially, I made enough to pay for the cool equipment that now I get to use just for me to, you know, to take cool pictures. But it, that plus, um, you know, having a, a camera that has a, a like Bluetooth or a Wi-Fi app to like a mobile device or your phone is huge because you can set your camera somewhere and then get into the frame if you want to take the picture of you doing something and use your phone as the remote and screen that you can see yourself to take the picture. Does that make sense? So that, that like the one-man show, it's a lot easier on this trip because my brother's here and so I can give him the camera if it's a picture of me anyway. You know, other shots I take, but uh, it's kind of tricky because I, I don't like to be in the spotlight. I don't want to be the one in the picture, but also I'm promoting adaptive travel and my brother's not in a wheelchair. So it's like I have to kind of be the, the one who is in a lot of the shots for, you know, in social media and stuff for people to realize, oh, wow, okay, this guy's in a chair who's doing this. Um, so it those are the two biggest tricks is, yeah, a drone, if you're at all interested, is an amazing tool. Um, the remote on the phone, you know, for guys without dexterity, there's, I built a, or not built, but like a remote shutter, which is what you would use for night photography that plugs into the side of the camera. Since I can't move my fingers, I hold the camera like this and then I bite, I don't know if I have it on this table right now, but I bite the remote shutter with my teeth and halfway down is focus all the way is clipped to the shutter. And so even I'm not squeezing, I'm basically just balancing the camera. And I'm using my teeth and my tongue to take the picture. Wow. And that's how I'm able to, like, to shoot um, out of the window. And, and that's a lot of the photos, too, are, are take, or yeah, the majority handheld are taken that way. Oh, I'm so excited because I have been thinking about going to Argentina. I've got friends in Buenos Aires, but also really, really, really want to go to Ushuaia. And just generally, I always thought I'd get to go like trekking around Patagonia, which, you know, obviously I can't do now. But are there, did you find ways around that? How, what did you do? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that. I actually met someone down here, an organization called Wield the World. Um, and his name's Alvaro. I'll, I'll give you his contact if you're at all interested for the podcast. Yeah. But he is based in Chile and does, he did like the, the famous, the W trek in Torres del Paine as a quadriplegic on the, you know the Juliet? It's like a one-wheeled uh, chair that 
people kind of in, in front and behind help hoist you up and, and over or hiking essentially. But he's done a bunch of a big adaptive treks and hikes down here and has started kind of an adaptive adventure tourism company. Um, so if you want to go towards Del Paine, you want to go hand cycling across the Atacama Desert in Chile. If you want to go, he and he has now adaptive equipment at these different uh, places. And, you know, if you want to go whitewater rafting through Fudule Fudule, if you want to do all these things in Patagonia, he's setting up this cool network down here and around the world. In Dubai, he has stuff in places in the U.S., in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and so... I didn't know about him before I came. I kind of came into this trip thinking, well, the van's my freedom. Unfortunately, I don't have my bike. You know, there's some things that would be cool, but I'm not going to complain. Look what I, you know, I'm pretty stoked on what I'm able to do. Um, but then I ran into people who said, hey, have you heard of Wheel of the World? This guy, Alvaro, you know, he's a quad. You should talk to him. And I found him. And of course, now I, I just talked to him last week for like an hour or two. A lot of the places where I was, wishing I had a raft or something I could use. He's like, dude, we have a raft there. You should have called me. And I'm like, I didn't know, you know, so I'm trying to <laughs> now. Grayson, do you want me to get a sky scanner right now so I'm fucking a splat till you come with me? <laughs> we'll just go on a mad adventure. Exactly. Please, he's just... the man. And he's, he lived in LA for years, so he's fluent in English and Spanish and, and a, an awesome guy. Um, but for those looking to do that sort of thing, especially down here, he's the number one outlet and it's a big push of him his goal too is to change the perceptions in latin america because and and you know where you guys live in in the states like there's still some stigma against being in a chair but not not like there is down here there's if you're in a wheelchair down here people don't think you could ever go out and ride a bike or go do you know, much less time El Cap or anything like that would just blow their mind. Like when I get out of my van, people are just like, like staring at me like, what? And, <laughs> and then they're looking inside like, who's driving this thing? I'm like, wait, I'm the one who was driving. And they've never seen something like that. It just doesn't exist down here. Oh, that's amazing. And Karen, you're not just an athlete, you're an explorer, um, whether it's kind of hand biking across the Himalayas or skiing expeditions in Greenland or kayaking in Canada. I think the list of your adventures is endless. Um, so I kind of wanted to know after your injury, how did you first get into exploring? Like what was your, your first trip? Um, my first big one was across the Himalayas from... Kyrgyzstan into Kazakhstan and then Western China and then across the Karakoram Mountains into Pakistan. But that um, trip you said that was my first like big trip. So before before that, I'd just done stuff on the handbike in Scotland. I, my first train my, my first training trip for that was to the Outer Hebrides, which have nothing in common with the Himalayas. They're just flat islands in Scotland. I had a bike made by a kind of fairly unusual guy down in Australia and he'd never made a tandem before. So I decided a tandem was the way forward because um, I was fairly newly injured and I didn't think a regular bike would be, I thought it'd be frustrating for my friends because I thought it'd be really slow. And handbikes weren't really, it wasn't really a big thing back then. They didn't, it wasn't a sport. It wasn't a thing at all, really. It was still kind of just wheelchair racing and yeah, archery, which didn't really appeal you built a tandem bike, and how did that work? What was the design on that? Well, I wouldn't say I built it, but I kind of asked asked for the design. So um, 
it's you pedal it with your arms on the front and your legs at the back. So it's two wheels at the front, one at the back. I'm on the front and I had like the brake. I had everything actually, all the controls. I think my friend had a brake just for a comfort brake on the back in case he was panicking. Um, so yeah, it's made by a company called Green Speed in Australia, and then took it on a training trip to the Hebrides, and then we went flew to Kazakhstan and then began riding. So we yeah we just put the my my wheelchair on the pannier rack at the back and I had two other friends along they were on regular bikes and one of them towed a little one-wheel trailer behind the bike and the wheels of my wheelchair were on the trailer and then all of our camping kit we, we just camped at the roadside and wherever we could stay and we just were completely independent carrying all our own kit for six seven weeks just um on the dirt road across the himalayas into middle wow. of <laughs> wow and how soon after was that after your injury did you did you brave that trip that was three years after my injury yeah were you a cyclist prior what was there an like an adventure background so yeah i was like a I'd done a lot of climbing, so I broke my back climbing. And then I also did quite a lot of mountain bike touring. So I'd like cycled around Iceland. I was a geologist, so I went around Iceland collecting rocks and cycling and then cycled in various bits of Europe. So I just knew that I wanted to ride and so had this bike made. And that was the beginning, really. And then I actually found a picture of myself a few years ago. My mum sent it to me, and it's me and my brother as kids. And I'm on. We used to have a village kind of fancy dress thing every year, like a village festival. And I'm next to my bike. I'm probably about six, seven years old, and I've got a big sign that says "Pedal for Health, Rain or Shine." And then <laughs> with this fancy dress bicycle, and I realised looking back at that that obviously cycling was meant to be a massive part of my life. So, yeah, since then, I've been back to the Himalayas maybe three, three more times, and probably one of the most incredible journeys. Um, was cycling from Lhasa to Kathmandu across the Tibetan Plateau, mainly because you get a 4,000-metre descent at the end, which is pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah, that means you had to go up 4,000 metres to get there. <laughs> no, you thought it was already at nearly 4,000 metres, so um, it's kind of cheating. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. You, do, you do a lot of mountain passes. There's about 10 passes over 5,000 metres, so plenty of climbing, but... I like places with um, thin air and mountains and, um, yeah, I like altitude. I'm, I'm not a fan of being anywhere with creepy crawlies. I've just discovered being in Mallorca in the summer, which I've never been before. It's like I've had a cockroach infestation and I get really queasy. I keep looking up there because there's a, a, a vent in my ceiling and they keep crawling out of there and I'm like... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy when you can't walk just to stamp on top of a giant cockroach. They're about three or four inches long here and they're bright red. Oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just curious, like, from a logistical standpoint, does the bike collapse down for travel? And what do you ride now? And what, like, I would love to do more adventure bike touring so i'm just curious on the like the, the detail side of how you plan and pack and equipment wise yeah so the the tandem is like three meters long or so and weighs about 30 kilos and it doesn't pack down at all so when i ordered it from australia i actually booked it on cargo to come back to the uk 
And then when I went to check in, I think it was like Qantas, they said, oh, no, you can just wrap some just wrap some stuff around it and we'll check it in here, no problem. So since my whole time I had was using that bike, I just used to fly with it as it is. I just literally used to turn up at the check-in desk with this bike. Okay. With a few bits of bubble wrap here and there to protect the delicate bits and they just shove it on as it was. So it's kind of amazing, really. But um, I don't know how that would go down now. Airlines are a little bit more, maybe a bit more fussy. I'm not sure. But then it was okay. And now for, for the last kind of... 10 or 15 years, I've been using my single hand bike for all the trips. And that breaks down into two parts and packs into a kite surf bag. And it's kind of easier to travel with than the tandem. Um, but yeah, obviously that introduces new challenges. So I've been cycling across each continent. So um, I've actually just seen your picture in Patagonia of the Serra, Serra is it the Serra? The, the yes, road yeah. Road like that. yeah, yeah. So I've got the same picture, but sat at the top on the handbikes. Um, but it's a bit challenging to find a bike that works for all the terrain in different countries. So um, Patagonia was the toughest for surface because it was just a dirt road all the way. And my handbike, I had a special um, fork made to take a bigger, fatter tire, but it wasn't that well made in the end. And um, basically the front wheel span every time there was a gradient of more than about 3%. So... My friends I was with ended up having to push me up every hill in Patagonia. I was pedaling, they were also pushing. So they would like pedal ahead. One of them would stop near the bottom, one in the middle, and one somewhere a bit near the top. And then I'd just like pedal like crazy, and they'd come behind the extra boost to stop the wheel from spinning. Yeah. One of them had one arm, one of them can't see very well. So it was kind of a, bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> And in Patagonia, I don't know if you noticed this, Kirk, but there's um, a lot of the land is private. So I'm used to being in Scotland where it, there's the right to roam. So land is like free and open and you can camp anywhere. Whereas in a lot of parts of the world, I've realized you can't. So Patagonia, there's these gorgeous stretches of grass. But you can't get to them to camp. So it's like they're on the other side of a giant fence. So quite often my friends were posting me through gateways like, just grabbing my feet on one side and threading me through the gate and then we camp on the other side but yeah, yeah, it's a bit, a bit tough. oh guys you're living the dream i'm really interested karen that you and um, that it was three years after your injury when you started kind of adventuring again um or, or did you have other adventures before before the three years yeah, i mean i suppose like I, I was always you know i used to every weekend i was in the mountains with friends or canoeing and doing different things so when I had my injury, I went down to England to a hospital, to a spinal unit, and then went back to Scotland to be a student again and basically just went away every weekend again, just sleeping on beaches and camping wherever. And I suppose that was just my mindset and my friends were all like that too. So adventure was just how it carried on. At first, I thought I'd have to stop and just live in a world with tarmac and then remember thinking, nah, I can't do that. So got to find new ways i think probably the most challenging one mentally has been when i've had to leave my wheelchair behind for a long time so kayaking from vancouver to alaska was 10 weeks on the water and basically no wheelchair so um that was like mentally really tough at the beginning so you just think oh my goodness like how am i going to cope without my independence um but we pretty much paddled like from dawn till 
dusk and slept on the beaches and um I probably got my wheelchair about once every four weeks. We posted them up the coast on boats and in just anyone who would take them. There was me and another guy who was paralyzed as well. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a few float planes just took them and flew them up the coast. And then we get them like a month later in some random harbor in an Alaska town. And <laughs> and it was walking on the moon when you've been in your wheelchair for a month. I'm so pleased that this conversation is happening this week because, Gracie, last week on the show, we we're talking about, you know, you know, finding limits and things that, you know, annoyed us that we couldn't do anymore. And now I'm feeling like there's nothing that we can't do. We can do everything. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just really interesting because when I was first injured and I'm still quite newly injured, I felt like my life had suddenly got a lot smaller and my world had got smaller and the possibility of these sort of grand, amazing trips and adventures didn't really seem in my reach anymore so I'm, I'm really curious to know how you two kind of got this the confidence back to to do these sort of adventures for me it just comes like little by little um and before every trip it's not like I've ever gone feeling confident every almost every trip I've nearly dropped out before it thinking what am I thinking like this is crazy how can I live without a wheelchair for three months and then for me it's all about people and just having some other crazy people who are up for some silliness and um, suddenly you're being shoved around in a wheelbarrow or a shopping trolley and <laughs> you've got some friends with you and it's not always easy, but at least it's not boring. So I have a thing I call it the power of negative thinking. So all the, all the reasons why I shouldn't go, like all of the worries and all of the things that are nearly stopping me, I write them down. So, for example, with Greenland, that was that was a month without a wheelchair again and um, minus 30 or whatever, and just loads of potential issues. You know, going to the toilet in the middle of an ice cap, and what are you going to do if you had a catheter problem and you wet yourself? Just endless reasons why not to go. And I basically just wrote them all down and then thought, what is, what's one thing I could do about every single little detail that will make me feel like I've tackled it and could go there just a bit more prepared for that? Um and then, so in the negativity, the stuff that might nearly stop you, there's quite a lot of power to be safer and make things more possible, if that makes sense. I love that. Yeah, I like it. I wonder about the, the thing that stops me or that worries me. Like I went to the US there for like six weeks and just kind of bummed around. And, but I wasn't brave enough to do it in an, in an adventurous way. You know, I had a rental car and I had you know, st- places to go where I knew people, you know. Um, but I, my big worry the whole time was about catheters. So how do you, when you know you're going on a really long journey, you're going to be away for months, what, what do you do to make sure that you don't get stuck? Uh, so I've got a super pubic catheter, so it goes in above the pubic bone, um, and it's a permanent indwelling one. And as I've got, the longer it's been there, the more challenging it can be in a way. So, um, like I didn't used to have to wash it out every day, but now if I don't wash it out every day, I get really big problems with like sediment and blocking. So now I have to take all these bladder washers, which is loads of carriage, it's a lot of kit. So every time I fly, I'm going through an airport with, you know, 10 weeks worth of bladder washers. And now with airport security, they want to put every single individual one in its own plastic bag through the scanner. <laughs> because, And I don't want to check them in in case they get lost because they're obviously vital. So that's kind of one aspect. But 
I, I just take spares with me and I can change it all myself. And sometimes I'm doing it in random fields and <laughs> like, it's not great, but I suppose I've got good at looking after myself on that, in that respect. And so I feel like I can manage it as well as pretty much anybody could really. And I also have the super pubic. Uh, but I'm having issues with it with sediment and stuff. So you actually answered one of my questions, which is interesting. I'm like 10 years post, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I need to flush it more or something. But the, it, it does, in a sense, compared to intermittent catheter, cathing, it's a lot less materials that you, I think, need to bring. But, you know, as Karen said, it has its ups and downs, too. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, that's another question a lot of people ask, like, man, a year on the road, like, how do you bring enough medical supplies? And it's like, well, catheters being the one main one, I'm like, well, I have a super cubic, you know, I can go a week or two without changing it as opposed to like four a day or whatever you need if you're, you're intermittent, which is a huge number change between the two. And I'm in a van. I'm not, you know, I've, I've got places to store stuff. How do you, you, Karen, when you're going around without, are you ambulance ready at all, or do you just like you're so in, in Greenland and kayaking and stuff? You're just literally like walk or dragging your butt around camp. I'm I'm trying to picture. Yeah, so I I can't walk at all. I'm um complete injury from T3. Um, so I'm I'm obviously fortunate. I've got my hands and my arm strength is reasonable, but my sitting balance is really poor. Um, and I yeah wobbling about so the most ridiculous trip I ever took <laughs> so when we were doing the kayaking trip through Canada there was a group it was a group of nine of us and two of us couldn't walk um my the other guy that was paralyzed was a lower injury so he was in a single kayak I'll bet a kayaker as well I was in a double but basically our friends just carried us up the beach every night and down every morning and then when we stopped for breaks we'd just stay in the kayak and then at camp I, our job was pretty much cooking. Like I was based at the stoves and cooking and making drinks and doing all that kind of stuff while the others would be shuttling kit up and down from the boat. So we all kind of felt like we were part of the team and had a role, but just had to adapt what that was. Um, but the most crazy trip I did in a kayak was in Patagonia, actually. Um, it was for a BBC Scotland documentary and it was a shorter trip. We were only out on the water for like a week or so, but didn't have the wheelchair again and my partner at the time and and partner on the trip um he did his back in on the first day of the trip so he was no. really strong and he just piggybacked me up the beaches and then suddenly he couldn't walk either so it was like this total ridiculous comedy of two people that can't walk it's a wilderness Patagonia on a sea kayaking trip and he was crawling <laughs> up the beaches on his old paws because he couldn't oh walk. man so much pain with his bad back and I was bumming up the beaches, just like picking up on one leg at a time and then side shuffling up the beach. And then we were camping. We didn't want to go so far because it was really hard to move up the beach. So quite a lot of nights we'd wake up because the, the sea was starting to come into the tent. You suddenly were up with the wave. Right. Right. Huge, oh. right. You're like, oh, no, quick, we're going to move. So, yeah, that wow. was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. What other advice would you two give kind of as aspiring adventurers that um, have disabilities? I would like, I think bladder, bowel and skin care is obviously always a massive issue. And if you're going out into an adventure, then you've got to be really on the top of your game with it. Because um, 
if not you're in trouble or your adventure's over pretty fast. So um, I spend a lot of time thinking through all that side of things to make sure I don't, and just never take any risks when I'm, I, I try not to anyway, but on an adventure even more so. Like every little pebble, every little grain of gravel or anything. Like my teammate in Canada, he got into the kayak one day and all day in the kayak, his leg was jumping and he didn't know why. And often that's a sign that something's uncomfortable. Anyway, at the end of the day, it turned out he'd had a tiny pebble that had fallen into the kayak when he got in that morning and it had been under his bum all day. And he got a pressure sore and then you're obviously on this trip of a lifetime and he didn't want to quit, which I understand. But at the same time, it was a pressure sore having seawater sloshing about every day and it got worse and worse. And he had to kind of break the trip and go on a boat for a week and then he kept getting back in the kayak and then it'd break open again. And in the end, he had like six months in hospital with maggots and skin grafts and all the rest of it. So really the right call for him probably would have been just to go home and but I get why he didn't. But I think that's just such a massive issue to take care of. And you can't be careful enough, I think. So, yeah. Lots of gel seats. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I would say, um, depending on the adventure, and it doesn't have to be, you know, adventure is different for each individual person. It could be going, you know, out for the weekend on their own or doing something like that. But, for me, a huge part was community and being around um, some other people to network with and to, to just bounce those ideas and to do trips with somebody. You know, you don't have to go by yourself, but just traveling um, like wheelchair rugby. I, I like the sport. It's fun, but it was more about traveling with other quadriplegics to see how they get on and off the bed, what shower chair they use, what how their chair fits them, what they drive, you know, those sort of things, how guys with no arms and no legs are eating and feeding themselves. Like all these things fascinate me to where you kind of put them in this memory bank of, of learning. That reminds me of um, in the Paralympic village in Rio, I done my shoulder in a week before the race. And so I couldn't transfer. It was like really, really bad. And the whole of the wheelchair rugby team had had all the legs chopped off their beds in the village because all the beds were way too high in the Paralympic village. So oh, um, I need to do the same. So they got the legs chopped off my bed as well. <laughs> oh man! Do you on these trips? Do you bring? Do you do shoulder exercises outside of the activity you're doing? Are you really uh, at tune? I know a lot of you know hand cycling, kayaking. Those both of those are a lot of pulling more so than pushing. But uh, do you have a regiment of um, some stretches or like resistance bands or anything that you? are consistent with that you would recommend for shoulder health so perhaps paralympics your shoulder doesn't go out next time yeah i'm not always consistent with it it's one of those where you start to feel things twinge and you're like oh yeah i need to do my exercises but i have definitely found a set of yeah elastic bands and lots of rotator cuff work and for me it's never it's never usually the hand biking or the exercise itself that causes a problem it's usually like a tran awkward transfer getting into a vehicle or doing something badly, which is obviously much more at risk of doing that when you're on an adventure and getting in and out of random things. I have a question for both of you actually about that. I think when I was first injured, I felt like I've just had kind of one of the most catastrophic injuries, you know, a person can have a spinal cord injury. Um, and I just 
felt like I, after that, I was like, well, if I've already had that happen to me, you know, it's not going to get any harder. So I was wondering if you found after your injury, did you kind of get a new sense of bravery, basically? Well, I've got a story on that. So when I was in hospital recovering from my injury and looking into um, getting a wheelchair, someone who worked for a wheelchair sales company had been paraplegic and then she got really into sit skiing and she'd done like a head over thing on the Hisuki and broken a neck and become quadriplegic. I did break my neck in my climbing accident at C6 and luckily didn't damage the cord there. But I think I still lived with that as a possibility of like, (laughs) you think you've done the worst, but there's more, there's more, there's always more. So I still kind of had a sense of don't push too hard. Like I think people think I'm some kind of adrenaline junkie, but I'm really not. And when I, when I ski, I'm fairly kind of, cautious I value what I've got and I don't want to really get, make any worse <laughs> that's interesting I wouldn't say I'm any crazier but I'd say I still do as much stuff now as I did before you know if anything I've toned it down just with age more than anything of being like I don't really need to go that fast or push that hard like I'm I'm having fun just being out here doing this I'm not going to scream down the trail as fast as I used to because I don't really need to. I'm not racing. Like, it's, this is fine. That's how I feel as well. And I did um, dislocate my shoulder uh, trying to surf kayak about 12 years ago or something. And then um, that's an injury that's caused a lot of challenges. So, um, yeah, I kind of think we need, our, we need our shoulders. Like, certain things are pretty important to us. And so it's not about not taking risks, but also it's not about being silly either for me. I think I've got one last question for you both. Um, I was wondering, post post quarantine, post isolation, what what adventures have you got your sights set on? What's your kind of next dream? I don't even know. This has been this was the big adventure that I was, you know, the the South America trip where I am now. So yeah, I don't. Why for you then? Well, I made it to Ushuaia, but I, 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 I ended, yeah, I guess I didn't finish that, that side of the story, but I ended up because of timing with my brother when he could get out of work and stuff and the weather seasons, and since he was on a motorcycle, we actually shipped from California to near Santiago, Chile. So we, and then we drove from Santiago to Ushuaia and then up to Buenos Aires. So we were planning on driving back. So we've only done the bottom Patagonia chunk. And we haven't done anything north of where I am in Buenos Aires. So I haven't, you know, Uruguay, Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, like all of those we were planning on going through and all of those. Now it's what we'll see. Um, The big concern is not necessarily the coronavirus, too. It's also the economic crash that has affected the whole world, but especially down in in developing countries is a question of... um, it's still safe to travel because people are more desperate and more, you know, have, have been out of work and there's no, you know, it, there's a lot that weighs into whether we get back on the road, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it's not just the coronavirus now, there's the ripple effect after it. And is it going to be safe and smart for us to continue on? Or do we just say, you know, driving, unfortunately, our vehicles are expensive and they stand out. And I don't like that about them. Um, but especially in a country like this, people stop and see you drive by and are like, wow, what's that? And that's the tension that you don't want drawn when people are desperate and looking for a way out. And so 
we're we're kind of weighing those options now, and then I don't know what will happen next, but I'm gonna try and um, I'm gonna try and really push like the educating others about this this adaptive van life or school bus or RV or tiny home or whatever you want to call it, um, but like a mobile living uh, as a means of of a sense of freedom and adventure and try and build up that sort of community as a personal goal um, and then see where that leads because, you know, you never know who you talk to, for instance, right now that sometimes inspires you and, and puts a trigger in your mind of a new idea of like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll try this. That's, that's where the magic happens. So how about you, Karen? Yeah, well, I'm thinking Colorado to go off-road biking is starting yeah, to see. happen. <laughs> I've been, I've got stuck in a bit of a well. I've broken the rut a little bit in the last uh, since Rio. Actually, in the last four years, I've um, been riding on all these continents. But I feel like I have got in quite a rut with my cycling, and I really kind of want to get out of that rut. So that's about cycling in different ways, but also getting back to some of the other things like kayak, sea kayaking, and um, skiing and stuff again. So those are things that are really on my radar and. Actually, the, the lockdown has been really interesting because the last journey of the Quest 79 project, which is seven continents, nine nine rides, so um, is Antarctica. And that's felt like the big one that um, is wow. kind of really... Oh, you need somebody to be your bag lady to come and carry the bag for you. That, I'll do it. I'll make you tippy, whatever. I'll clean out the catheters. I don't care. I'll do anything. But it's been a really interesting one because even though I can't, I'm, I like believe anything is possible, financially it's a massively expensive place to get to. But also with my own values, I'm like, I don't just want to go there just to be a tourist and damage this beautiful continent. And I don't know, I've just been kind of stack it up, stack, trying to stack it up for myself. But it's all kind of come to into place. And um it turned out that seven. So there's a story with number seventy nine for me. That's how I started the whole post, uh, quest seventy nine, which it's a long story which began with me asking for my drinks extra hot, and someone said, "Ask them at seventy nine degrees." That the, that's the hottest we make there. And then it became this joke that my friends thought I was being a diva asking for my drinks at seventy nine degrees. And then I won the seventy ninth medal for Britain in the Rio Paralympic Games, and this I was like, "That's weird. That's this seventy nine has been happening all summer." And then I was a geologist. Um, I studied geology in the Andes in Bolivia, and um, I'd forgotten that 79 is the atomic number of gold in the chemistry table. And then I started this Quest 79, which was, for me, the Southern Continent's nine rides. And the other part of it was encouraging people to do something for themselves and to step out of their comfort zone. And when we do that, I just think we discover all kinds of, so I called it inner gold, stuff that we discover about ourselves and other people that we never knew we had strength or resilience or belief or confidence or whatever it might be. Um, and now I've discovered that 79 degrees latitude and longitude is in Antarctica. Wow. <laughs> it's where the intersection, it's it will be possible to get there. So the plan is to create, to go to 79, 79 degrees and create a new pole called the pole of possibility. And we won't leave anything there. We just, we're just, we're going to go there and, um, we want to just connect with young people and people around the world to remind them what's possible when you just find that little bit of courage to take a step into the unknown and do something that maybe you wouldn't dare to otherwise. 
So um, that's the plan. And I know that we're going now. I just haven't got the money, but it's going to happen. <laughs> Somehow, it's, I know it's meant to be. So amazing. Amazing. Gosh. On my Instagram, there's a picture I was trying to uh, – I picked up a bunch of hitchhikers on my, my trip down here because I'm driving so low. And I was like, sure, you know, I'll, I'll take company and talk with people. And so when I got down to Ushuaia, there are all these – cruise ships going to Antarctica and boats and stuff like that. And so I wrote Antarctica on a piece of cardboard and sat by the cruise dock holding it, just kind of joking like, hey, you know, I picked up enough people. What kind, what sea captain wants to take me to Antarctica? <laughs> <laughs> right. But didn't get any takers on that one. <laughs> yeah, so I feel a connection with you because the Swire is where we would where we would get need to go to to get down there. So that would be – Ushuaia will be uh, on my radar, is on my radar. <laughs> there are a lot of excited people going down, and, and I had some friends that went, and it was, yeah, I would like to do it one day, but not not this particular trip, but maybe one day. I'll make it to Pole 79. That will be the second first. Oh, that's wonderful, guys. I, I mean, I could talk about this for the entire evening, but um, I think that's all we have time for. But thank you so much, Kirk and Karen. I feel like, Ruth, we've got to, I don't know, we've got to up our game. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> we've got to up our game. I mean, I was going to do a road trip around Scotland. Now I'm like, no, I'm going to I don't go on a pair of roller skates or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just inspired. I've got so much inspiration and nowhere to put it, but I'm soon, super, soon I'm enough. I'm into living in a, in a mobile um, van, though, Kirk. I'm very, I love that idea before I was injured, and I've done loads of, like, mad travelling in the strangest of vehicles, so that would be one that, we, we, we nearly bought a hearse once myself and a friend went to wow. and we were going to turn it into, um, we were going to start a blog and a podcast and all, and we were going to, um, so he's male, I'm female. So we were going to call it his and hers, and we were going uh, to sleep in the house <laughs> and see uh, how long it would take for us to actually kill each other. But um, we the the, the her, we actually went, we drove about a hundred miles to go see this hearse that was for sale. It was like an old hearse from the sixties. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> but um, yeah, it turns out our drunken ideas like you know i would have done it but he was like no actually i've got a job and you know responsibility <laughs> that's fine <laughs> that's I like it. Um, i'm hoping that they can start making because they have all these big van rental companies and rv like you know like wicked van rentals and these where people in new zealand and stuff rent and so my you know it'd be cool if i could get them to adapt a, a couple vans because the problem is you know to ship a vehicle is outrageously expensive and so yeah you, you can build one yourself but if you really want to explore other countries it's it, the dollar amount skyrockets really fit fast and the way to do it is to just rent something um if you can so how can we make it so that you can fly to new zealand and rent a van that already works there are a few companies out there i've not tried them but there's definitely a few companies out there advertising accessible camper vans but i think a lot of them mean that you can get in but you couldn't drive it and that kind of thing right totally and you know you battle with legal restraints and insurance and all that sort of thing with um people with different disabilities driving so there's a lot of like fine print that makes it tricky in different countries but 
How can our followers uh, find you on Instagram to, so to Instagram, follow your journey? Yeah, the easiest at impact, I-M-P-A-C-T, period, overland. Um, and, you know, I have a website that's www.impactoverland.com, all one word. But that's that's slowly being built. I'm, as much time as I've had in quarantine, it should be marvelous by now, but... Turns out I'm still really good at, at procrastinating, um, but that will eventually have all the the van uh, layout designs and details of what went into it and how and why and, and resources. Um, and as other people modify their cars, I'm going to try and actually put that on there too. So there's there's not just mine, but there's a plethora of if you want to modify a school bus or a trailer or a hearse, <laughs> you know, you can go on there and look it up. It's just come to me my mind a second ago I was going to say to you would you start like an international network with other people who are interested in, in doing that with the van and that maybe there's some kind of a barter system in place for people yeah totally you know like a house share like you fly here my <laughs> van, I'll fly there and borrow yours let's do this I've done that I've done that it's amazing yeah I think that's, I'm all for it 100% absolutely and Karen how can how can our followers find you what's the best um, so my Instagram is at handbikedark, all one word, and dark's D-A-R-K-E. And I have, I have redone my website during coronavirus, and it's um, just my name.com, Karen Dark, Karen with a K, dark with an E on the end.com. And there's a link on there to the Polar Possibility Project. So, yeah. Brilliant. And Ruth, how can, how can uh, our followers find us? <laughs> Um, you caught me off guard. They can find <laughs> Instagram at uh, this is Spinal Crap and on Facebook and Twitter at Spinal Crap Show. And also remember that we are um, partnering with the Spinal Injuries Association, and their website is www.spinal.co.uk. And if you need any coronavirus-related info. Um, they have loads on their website and their helplines are open. The number is on the website. Add that I'm raising, through the Quest 79, I'm raising 79,000 for the Spinal Injuries Association. So the possibility is like the final hurdle in that because we've, we've got to about 30 so far. So there's still quite a way to go. But um, yeah, they're a fantastic organisation, aren't they? In, in the UK, they're just such a font of support and info when you're first injured, especially well, all the way through. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Definitely. And um, if you like our podcast, uh, please remember to rate us, leave us a review and subscribe so other people can find the show. Um, thank you so much again, Karen and Kirk, for joining us. And until next time, this is Spinal Crap. Thank you much. See everyone. <laughs> Good luck, Kirk. Thanks for listening to This is Spinal Crap. And thank you to our sponsors, Colaplast. If you like this week's show, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. 